Let's see. What is one subject that we can talk about on this show that kind of makes everyone a little uncomfortable? I mean, the purpose of this show is to make sure people can openly and honestly discuss any subject that they want to. So I'll just go ahead and say this, just so everyone can hear it. Let's talk about sex. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of Relatively Normal. I am your host, Mark Paisant. Thanks again for listening to the show. I appreciate it. If it's your first time listening, well, you picked a great show to start. If you've been with me for a while since day one, I appreciate it. As always, you can go to anchor.fm, search for that Relatively Normal podcast, and become a paid subscriber for as little as 99 cents a month and I appreciate anything. So this was a long time in the making and I think everyone, I hope everyone gets a lot out of today's episode and I have a very special guest and I'm going to try my best to do some introductions but of course I'm going to let her introduce herself too. I have Parisa Frost on the show with me all the way from sunny California. It is very cold in Georgia, but sunny California. And she is an associate marital and family therapist specializing in sex and relationships of all varieties. She holds not one, not two, but three degrees from Georgia State, Loyola Marymount University in psychology, sociology, and marital and family therapy. She has worked both internationally and domestically in Buenos Aires, Argentina, Los Angeles, California to assist couples and individuals with bringing greater understanding into their identities, past traumas, relationships, sexual issues, using creativity, clarity, and cultural humility. So that is a lot, Ms. Frost. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me, Mark. I'm I'm really excited uh, to dive in and talk about sex and relationships of different varieties. Um, you know, this has really been my passion. So I'm excited to sort of look at, you know, our sociological codes and, and why it is difficult to talk about sex in general. Well, thank you. And you kind of, and, and we're just going to jump right in, you kind of started it. Like, why, <laughs> why, why don't people... Why don't people talk about sex, in your opinion? Right. Why don't they talk about it? Right, right. So, you know, whenever we're thinking about why we don't have conversations about sex, at least from my vantage point, we're having, it's more a conversation, you know, about sociological codes, more so than psychological conditioning, so to speak. We're just told, like, really since since birth and at the inception that it's something to be shameful of it's something to be abashed about um and so my interest has really grown sort of over my lifespan about why that is and why we kind of um repress or suppress a conversation that is ironically enough it's like the one thing that every human being on planet earth has in common um and it's something that is so really silenced because it is such an uncomfortable topic at times 
Right. And it's, you know, I, I think you being in the profession, you can, uh, one of the jobs you have to do is kind of put these kinds of conversations in the layman's terms so people can mm. feel more comfortable talking mm. about it. Um, you know, if on just a very, you know, very simple level, mm. you know, how do people become more comfortable talking about not just sex, but kind of their sexual expectations and relationships. Because, and I want to ask you that because it's, it's kind of the last thing that comes up when you think about it in a relationship. It's kind of, you know, we might find somebody physically attractive, which attracts us to them. You might ask about their job, their history, their family, what they want to do, what their dreams and aspirations are. Then maybe some way, somehow sexual expectations may come up. But how do people, right. how do we become more comfortable talking about that in relationships? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, too, here, because it's an issue of communication, really, at the end of the day, and how to implement more assertive communication and kind of push through those boundaries to talk about exactly sexual expectation, sexual experiences, um, and develop that that sense of intimacy, which, in fact, actually really does will time and time again enrich and increase sort of the richness of one's sex life but it's practicing kind of breaking down these learned and and kind of conditioned codes within us to say okay this is something that it's it practice takes perfect you know and and to really dive into it and and feel and kind of um assess if that safety is there with the couple and the and and for yourself with your partner and if it's not then sort of starting going backwards and saying and thinking why is that and what can we do to increase this sense of safety and comfort so we can have these kinds of conversations because really um you know with marital satisfaction whenever there is a good and healthy sex life it it constitutes for maybe 15 to 20 percent of said marital satisfaction but whenever there is a dysfunctional or a mismatched desire within the sex life, it constitutes for almost 50% of marital dissatisfaction, right? So it's kind of, it's this important piece that um, holds the whole, that holds the, the balance and the equilibrium. But whenever we don't talk about it and whenever we don't kind of practice these uncomfortable conversations, um, that's whenever we see things sort of slip and we get comfortable in not talking about it with our partners. And that is really at the core and the foundation of what can, what can cause, um, an unfulfilling sex life really. So what I'm hearing, I want to make sure, you know, the listeners hear correctly. Like if, if you're in a relationship and, and, you know, the sexual desires for both partners, sexual expectations are there and being met, that can play you know significant but not that large of a role in that the the happiness of that relationship however on the flip side of that if there is some a sexual disconnect then that can play an even more significant part in the unhappiness or the lack of happiness in that relationship is that correct right right you know and we're we really see too that it's whenever the sexual dissatisfaction is arising it's it's a it's typically 
a few different things that are manifesting through the sex life, you know, and that's whenever we can kind of see maybe there is this breakdown and maybe I don't feel safe with my partner or maybe I feel like I have to perform for my partner. Um, and gender can inform that a lot too. Gender and sexual identification and orientation can really inform like how we feel like we have to perform and how we feel like we have to show up, which can um, really kind of motivate people not to talk about it because it is difficult and it does kind of bring up a lot of insecurities that sometimes we're not always cognizant that we even had to begin with um and so yeah i think it it's it constitutes for a very uh you know not a it's it's a piece of the puzzle for mm -hmm. for a happy right. and healthy couple but whenever it's a very noticeable um issue or source subject typically it's it's wrapped around in a few different elements of the relationship that can be very workable but it's it can be difficult sometimes when the entry point is sex and sexuality because it is such a difficult topic to discuss i kind of like that analogy because you know if you put together a thousand piece puzzle if you know 20 pieces are missing you can still right. see the big picture like you can right. still see it however it'll never be complete without mm. those those pieces. I really like that analogy. And you kind of mentioned culture a little bit, and I kind of mm -hmm. wanted to, and, and we're, we're kind of keeping it high level right now. And when we talk about the different cultures, whether you want to say parts of the world, different religions, whatever like that, um, that we can see some true differences on how kids are brought up, how preteens, mm. how teens, how young adults are informed about sex. And a lot of mm -hmm. them, um, you know, including myself, we're, you know, other than, I'll be honest with you, a few sex ed classes I think I had in in middle school. And then I, I went to a Catholic private high school. So you can imagine how much we talked about sex in that. Right. <laughs> so, um, but what, you know, what are kids, what are young adults, how, how, how can we better prepare? I don't know if that's even a good question, mm. but how, mm -hmm. how do they, they get their sexual information, their sexual desires? How do they learn about themselves sure. from different cultures, different religions, different parenting styles? Sure. You know, I think we, from birth onwards, and this is, um, something that has been forged in statistics and in research but from birth onwards to really even normalize the language we use around them like saying private parts or you know uh having kind of cute petsy names for our genitals it, it at the foundation it's really showing and teaching that like these are things that can't be directly addressed you know inst instead of saying vulva or labia you know saying Kind of these cutesy and pet names this is just but one example where it's we're internalizing at a at a young age that like these aren't things that we should be talking about and we should kind of be you know um a bit pious about it and and this is something that there are you know absolutely cultures that are more sex positive but we do see this sort of um uh, and I say this lightly, but universally, where there is a lot of shame wrapped up within it. And especially in cultures where, you know, there's not, let's say, internet censorship and where we do have access to porn, which can be a great tool. You know, it can be something that is helpful for hormonal releasing, right? But it was never meant to be an educational tool. And that's the thing is a lot of kids are getting their education and their understanding of their, their sexuality and their sexual 
um, just education, you know, from pornographic websites. And that was never the intention of what it was meant to be used for. So we kind of see kids um, trying to modulate between what I'm not being told, you know, other than these very like rigid and at times uninformative sex education talks that we have in school. Um, and then whenever we go off and are trying to kind of explore and figure things out for ourselves, we're more so getting um, sort of like these perpetuated social ideas instead of brass tacks, you know, what is really happening? What do I really like? What am I into? Does that make sense? It, it definitely does. And I think I want to get a little more a little deeper because mm-hmm. I, I have a feeling there's on top of these cultural issues, there's gender issues where mm. men are kind of, you know, they're, they're prepped and prepared to be predators. And I don't mean that in, in the negative connotation sure. and women are seen or are taught to kind of protect what you have, you know, don't be a sexual creature. Don't mm. like suppress your feelings so can you kind of talk on that? Like how, how much does, does, does gender play into it and how we teach our, our young girls versus our young boys? Right. Huge, hugely. I mean, I think that that could be the biggest, if not one of the biggest pieces is how we're gendered and how we interpret socially what our gender means in the context of sexuality and how we express that. Uh, I think that exactly, you know, w- there's so much pressure on one hand placed on men to perform and then on the other hand there's also this idea and this um really normalizing of predatorial culture that happens within our society like really normalizing certain behaviors that are it's it can be generationally passed down it can be socially passed down and we normalize these things and on the other end too with women we also normalize this kind of piousness this kind of you know um slut virgin complex and dichotomy whereas if you are extremely uh, sexually experienced you are a quote-unquote slut and if you don't know you're supposed to be pious but then on that same end too then you're inexperienced and that is also a turnoff and so it's kind of these unhealthy things that we really internalize about how we're supposed to show up in the world and how we're supposed to show up in the bedroom based upon at times oftentimes very harmful social informing and I and I appreciate you you saying that because I and, and again um, I'm here talking to um, licensed sex and marital counselor uh, Parissa Frost and I talked about this in one of my earlier episodes about I was I was raised in a pretty conservatively sexual you know family didn't really talk that much about it I remember one, mm. once I got to college and and started to getting around a lot of testosterone my world mm. just kind of changed. And I think for <clears throat> men between, I'm going to say for me, between 18 and 22, it was kind of like, wait, am I, am I supposed to be this alpha male going after all these women? Like, am I supposed to do that? Like what? Right. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't really taught one way or the other. So um, for, right. for specifically, on your end, for the women listening, because I, I know there's women out there who have sexual desires, have sexual thoughts, but don't really think they should be expressing them. And that leads mm. to, you talked about it, leads to suppression, probably leads to forms of 
possible depression, anxiety, things like that, that really affect their mental health. So from a a woman's standpoint, what what do you see in, in your practice that, you know, that women are really affected with when they want to suppress these sexual desires that they have? Sure. So I think that, and it really shows up for kind of our mode of both self-pleasure and how we seek pleasure with others, if we even feel that we are deserving of pleasure, you know? you're right. I was listening to the other day um, to a TED Talk, and I heard something so interesting, and it really encapsulates here, I think, what you're asking, you know? It's that, you know, most women are, well, first and foremost, the clitoris is actually the only... um, the only sexual organ or part of our organs that the only uh, the function that it serves is for pleasure. There is no uh, reproductive reason for us evolutionarily having this. And so it is our birthright to have pleasure. And yet it is something that is absolutely and fundamentally uh, internalized as something that we don't have the right to, right? And that it's to even prioritize that is something dirty and is something to be ashamed of, right? And it's just absolutely, it's not. And again, it, it takes a lot of, you know, practice makes perfect and kind of deprogramming this and seeking out other women and women's circles and women who have embodied their sexuality and having these kinds of, it's, it's exactly what we're doing here. It's having these conversations and normalizing it and, ex, and normalizing that it's okay to explore these things and it's okay to, to get it wrong. And it's okay to demand, you know, I do want pleasure and I do um, want to be, I have a right to this. Right. And it's it's talking about it. It's becoming more comfortable with it. And first and foremost, it's exploring your own body because you can't really. um, And I shouldn't say can't, you know, that's everything depends, but it's very difficult to have an enriching and engaging and and empowering social life or excuse me sexual life with your partner if you haven't yet explored that within yourself and given yourself permission internally to explore that. And from, and I, I appreciate it. And I hope a lot of women get a lot out of what you just said. And mm. on the, and staying with the genders on the male side of it, it seems, at least from my experience, is that if you're, and I'm going to, I want to say this delicately, but if you're a man who, who <laughs> literally like wants to dive into, you know, in the women's side of things and make sure they're comfortable, make sure you're not looking at women like objects, make sure. sure that you're sensitive, make sure you really want to please your partner, make sure your partner is taken care of. You know, from the male perspective, sometimes they get a lot of pushback and they get a lot of, you know, crap from other men who, who, mm. who you know, we talked about the, the women's side of it where there's a slut virgin, but on the man side of it, it's like, Hey, you gonna, you're going to be a man or not. Yeah. And, and that I can tell you that leads to a lot of mental anguish for men. And you know, what, what have you seen in your profession from the men's side of it when they just, honestly, they just want to be loving partners. They just want to, treat women as equals they don't want to see them as prey they don't want to see them as objects but Mm. they get a lot of flack from their own gender their own male counterparts yeah Yeah, absolutely you know and there's thank you for bringing that up too because there's just so much 
pressure that is placed on men to be a certain way and so much of their worthiness as a man is tied into sexuality and you know their their performative level within sex and even the size of their just so much of that is tied into how much of a man you can be and it is so unhealthy and it's so toxic and and those who suffer the most within these are men you know whenever i think about whenever i think about these kinds of constructs too and and that insurmountable pressure that's placed even for, like as you said from friend to friend because it's so deeply embedded within our culture and within our idea of what masculinity can even be and it's so it's difficult it really is difficult to kind of rise to that and check in with your partner and really prioritize what she's needing and what makes her feel you know uh not being not that she's being a prey or he's not acting you know in these ways that 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 perhaps could be problematic and sometimes even unknown because uh, you know as you said a lot of times the desire is really there to be treating you know your partner with with respect and with equity but sometimes we don't even know whenever we are playing into these harmful social codes and it's really checking in i think on a continuous level again having these conversations and engaging with them as we are right now and, and really checking in with your partner too and seeing what does feel empowering and what you know what does feel kind of internally maybe that i am pushing something to the side or maybe this is me projecting so that i can feel more manly and those are those are really difficult kind of checkpoints to have with oneself but they're just absolutely mandatory and what i'm kind of hearing and thank you for that by the way what i'm kind of hearing from both um we talked about the you know, the cultural perspective, the gender perspective, things like that, um, mm. is to, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's like to really be able to, to try your best to get comfortable with your yes. own sexuality, get comfortable with your own body, yes. get comfortable with your own desires, your own needs, your own feelings. And that w might open you up to being in more loving relationships and more communicative relationships. That's what I'm kind of hearing is that we mm. need to take care of our, be a little selfish sometimes yeah. 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 to be selfish, to be unselfish. Is that, I mean, does that make sense what I'm saying? Absolutely. You know, that there, I could not have put that better myself. It's, it really is. You have to be selfish and explore inwards and prioritize your sense of sexuality and your pleasure. And in turn, and really with automaticity, you will see that return in being able to, to really attune with your partner and love them better and have a more sexually enriching life with them as well. Absolutely, you know, you kind of have to be selfish and love yourself first in order to be a better lover and a better loving partner. And and let's kind of, you know, before we hit this break and, and again, talking to uh, Parisa, Frost, uh, Parisa Frost, excuse me, um, about all things sex and mental health um getting getting just to to that point in regard to being selfish communicating you know some and and again this is i'm trying to make this conversation as normal as possible i'm sure some mm -hmm. people listening i mean this is why we're having the conversation to try to make it sure. normal but sure. when you talk about being about communicating and being more selfless from being selfish. 
some people have a difficult time. I'm sure a lot of people have difficult time. Once they figure out what they like, transferring that over to their partner, saying, mm. this is this is what I like. And kind of yeah. hoping hoping that their partner is a, is a mind reader and hoping that yeah. their partner kind of gets context clues. And sometimes <laughs> it's just like, hey, um, I really like it when I'm on top. And it's like, or I really like it when you do this. Or I really like it when... Yeah we use this toy, you know? Absolutely. You know, how we talked about being comfortable at the beginning, but I, I, I think it doesn't take, and I don't need no disrespect, but it doesn't take a therapist no. just to say, hey, just ask. I just you. open your mouth. Like, it's okay. <laughs> it's You say it once, you say it twice, they're going to get it. But some people yeah. don't want to do that. They don't feel comfortable doing that what I mean what do you tell people who who and I'm sure you've heard that a lot I don't I just want yeah. my partner to know how to do this and your probably first question is well have you have you told them so right. what, like what how do how do people do that you know it's so it's it is a difficult task to say the least you know because we are as humans we're so hardwired to be sensible towards and to avoid our own uh feeling of rejection and I really think that there, there are few, if any, more poignant sen- like feelings of rejection than when it comes to sexual preference or sexuality. I mean, those it's we are hardwired to try and avoid that very, very uncomfortable and embarrassing feeling. If if I do say, you know, I do like this, or can we do more of this, and it's received incorrectly, that can be a horrible feeling, right? But it's just, especially if the communication, the intimacy, the love is there, yes, we do need to practice them, but we can, say for example, here's an exercise or an intervention that I'll give sometimes. Whenever we're thinking about, okay, I like this more, do a little bit less of that, do a little bit more of that. You know, in the heat of the moment, it's it's really difficult to kind of try and and just communicate those things whenever you are so vulnerable and so bare. And so I'll have them sort of practice on each other's hands with oil, you know, and this can be metaphoric for uh, working lubricants in, you know, or, or whatever and saying, just massage your partner's hand, you know? Oh, I kind of, I like it a bit more whenever you pull on my thumb. Oh, can you can you push, you know, into the palm of my hand a little bit less harder? And just having that conversation and seeing, you know, whenever we're talking about like sensory touch on my hand, we're, it's, it's, it's nothing, you know? We're able to communicate with such ease and I get a much better hand massage, you know? <laughs> And then throughout that, we can kind of work and make it more and more vulnerable and more and more intimate until it becomes normalized in the bedroom as well. Well, thank you for that. So we're going to quick hit this quick break. And right after the ad, we'll be back to ask a little more specific questions in regard to relationships with Miss Parisa Frost. So we'll be right back after this quick break. podcast and we're going to continue our conversation with miss uh, Parisa Frost and 
we talked a lot of a lot of general stuff on the last uh, on the first part of the show. So we're gonna kind of dig into some stuff and and just if you're listening, and I probably should have said this at the beginning, if you're listening with young children, like we are talking about sex, and as you know, take it as as you will. This is this is your disclaimer, but we're gonna have conversations about sex and relationships and mental health. So, and I think this might be one of the biggest questions you may get. Um, and I know I've had friends talk to me about this. I've talked to other people about this. Relationships where there is sexual desire on one end, but not on the other. I feel like that is a big issue nowadays. I mean, possibly, you know, bigger than we suspect, but, and it, and, and I think people need to understand, you could probably talk this a little bit more, is it's not always one way. It's not always the men mm-hmm. who have a high sex drive and sure. the women who don't. We there. I'm sure you've seen plenty of examples of the opposite. So mm-hmm. those type of relationships, I kind of want to, you know, have you, have you kind of talk twofold on this, you know, one, you know, possibly how do couples get to that point? And, and I know it can be socially, psychologically, you know, bodies changing, people getting older, sexual desires go away. But how does, how does a couple kind of rebound? How do they get back? Mm. How do they, you mm. know, how do they get back to, you know, you know, possibly to a point where they can at least be closer in sexual drive and sexual desire? Sure. Sure. Great question. You know, I think that that probably not probably definitely that's what people are coming what I see people come in for the most in terms of uh, you know sexual treatment and sex therapy is mismatched desire really Um, and then maybe infidelity second or third but it's typically mismatched desire and mismatched experience sexual experience and it's um, you know it's something that is so common and I also think can be so easily kind of redirect. Well, I, you know, I say that with a few caveats, but can be easily redirected um, on one hand, you know, by increased communication and by kind of seeing where the snag is, when it started happening and looking at our context and, you know, was there job stress increases there? It's not as much about increasing what turns you on in those situations in so much as decreasing what turns you off. And if it's work-life stress, if it's, uh, you know, a huge life transition, if it's something going on with the kids, you know, we really have to look at these things and see how they're informing us and our sexual desires. Because whenever you're kind of going through it or going through the motions or just going through a rough patch in life, it becomes damn near difficult to be feel as a sexual being you know and want and have that desire and that increase and there's absolutely a engendered kind of bias that it, it it's always the men and men and, and it can be extremely damaging for men as well you know whenever there is that mismatched desire it's like oh what is wrong with me i'm the man in the situation and i should be i should be the one that's uh, you know wanting sex more and it really goes it goes both ways you know people wax and they wane um And, you know, to be more kind of specific or maybe kind of give some to kind of speak to what you were saying about maybe the spark getting lost or kind of losing our way within sort of bedroom contracts or bedroom routines, so to speak, um, and how to rebound from that. 
and it becomes, you know, whenever you've just gotten so used to your partner and you know that the ins and the outs and the in-betweens and the uglies and the pretties and everything between with them, it can be difficult to really keep that spark alive and feel sexy and 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 keep the desire kind of at a place of of equal experience right and so assertive communication yes is the first piece here but also you know trying new things spicing things up having a discussion about maybe likes and dislikes what i've never tried before maybe having kind of a field trip to to the sex toy shop and putting yourself in these situations that are new even though your partner is the person that you know better at times than you know yourself, but putting yourself in these new, vulnerable, sexy, exciting situations can really bring a couple closer together, you know? And this is kind of, this is one example. Obviously it depends too on a lot of different dynamics of why that mismatch desire is happening, but things of sort of um, whenever things can get stale, quote unquote, spicing things up in a novice experience for the both of us. And so, and I, I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned how how often you're seeing this, and this might be the number one issue. And um, and of course, I'll, I'll be remiss to say if I didn't do some type of research myself when I knew uh, you agreed to this show. And one of the sure. one of the books I'm actually listening to right now is is um, Come as You Are with Emily. Mm. Nagoski, I believe that's how you pronounce her name. Yeah, and, great book. Um, she kind of talks about, <clears throat> and I think it goes well for this. Kind of talks about everyone has kind of these the the the, the accelerator and the brake in mm. in their sexual desires. And you touched on something specific when it came to work stress. You're using an example, but I think, and again, I am not a therapist, not a doctor, not a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. I am, I'm kind of going from experience, but I kind of think people don't seem to associate like other stresses, Mm -hmm. other Mm -hmm. mental issues. Like people seem to think their sex life is not going to be affected by if you had a rough day at work or if you got a speeding ticket on your way home or outside, you you know what I'm saying? Like people don't, people don't understand that one can have something to do with the other they just want everything to be separate like how do you when you're discussing mm. when you're discussing you know sexual desires sexual issues with with couples and you know you i, I know your job in is to get to a point where people can kind of open up and see mm. what's really the issue like how do you how do you show people that one does have something to do with the other. Like, how do you do that? Sure. It's really, you know, about looking at our patterns and looking at sort of the, you know, monotonous things that exactly we don't really associate with having anything to do with the bedroom or with our sex lives, when in actuality, they're inextricably linked, you know? If you are having stress in this domain of your life, if there is grief and loss happening in the family, if there is a terminal illness, if there, I mean, so many things about our day-to-day living or our uh, interactions become manifested in the bedroom or really, you know, lack thereof, so to speak. But it's, 
it's looking at these patterns and especially, you know, not to keep bringing it back to this engendered point, but especially for men as well. Like I see a lot with um, being disconnected to sort of our emotional constructs and especially for men, you know, it's don't show emotions and be very, you know, stoic. And so whenever there is uh, in underlying anxiety or depression, a lot of times it's so suppressed, and this can be true for women too, it's so suppressed and it manifests in having no real sexual desire and that in that moment or at that time or for that stint because there is sort of this underlying anxiousness or depression, but it's really suppressed because we don't talk about our emotions in this in this society and in, in this culture, um, or in, and in many really. Um, and so that's something we really, we need to unpack and um, sort of look at our day-to-day -day what's happening, the boring stuff to kind of see what is, when did the switch happen and what were my contextual cues when my desire started to decrease? Does that make sense? It, it does. And I kind of want to stick with that because I think um, a lot of the stuff that it, and again, with I, with my high function anxiety, like I do a lot of research before I talk to people mm. who, are, who I, who I yeah. am on this show. But one of the things that I was, I wish I knew the, the person on this Ted talk, but she was talking about people who love the act of having sex. Mm. They love the act of making love, being intimate with their partner. The part they don't like is the lead up to it. They want mm. sparks to fly. They want, you know, it to be so just, um, it just happens naturally. You know, people mm. just get in the mood and, you know, they get, and sometimes I think the, the message she sent was like, hey, just have sex. Like, just like make a plan. Yeah. Get in your bed. Like, and, yeah. and do, if you, you know, if you like the act of it, but like, I know a lot of people want that romance part of it and they they want to be the mood to be perfect they want the candlelights right. they want it to be the right time of night they want the, possibly the kids to be to bed they want and sometimes yeah, just like yeah. listen sometimes you have to take initiative so yeah. for for those <laughs> for those people who who want everything to be perfect they want the stars to align they want their their partner to be on the same wavelength as them and because we kind of talked about the acceleration and the brakes, like once one of those things, like we have a list of 10 things we want to, to happen to be perfect for sex to happen. But if one of those doesn't go right, brakes are hit really hard. Mm. Like what can couples do to, to kind of understand that we don't need things to be absolutely perfect to enjoy our time together? Like what, what can couples do to kind of get to that point? Right, sure. So, uh, two parts to this, I think. One is, you know, we have this idea that exactly things have to line up. You know, the stars have to align with exactly what we're wanting and when we're wanting and not to have these distractions. And it's, we kind of create this impossible scenario in our heads sometimes. And it becomes the, the pressure that we place upon ourselves can make it difficult to to even get into or get to that act that we enjoy so much right and so sometimes what i'll i'll have clients do that can be helpful 
is and it can take some of the pressure off is just to have a what i call bedroom contract you know and saying and it's this like really unsexy idea to say okay you know well at 2 p.m we're gonna try we're gonna have sex on tuesday at 2 o'clock 2 15 you know but to increase and kind of try to set out these plans because research really does show whether it is planned or spontaneous it doesn't decrease um, the amount of pleasure that we experience in that actual act, right? And so it's just kind of taking that pressure off of like, oh, sex has to be this crazy, spontaneous, rip my clothes off and deconstructing those ideas and just trying to get back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, brass tacks and what I like and what I don't like. And sometimes, you know, really scheduling that and saying, okay, at, at 12 p.m. on Tuesday, we're on during the next month every 12 p.m on tuesday we're going to try and um just kind of get into this act and i i do want a candle here and i do want this music to play and mentally preparing yourself and you know what if it doesn't it doesn't and we're still going to kind of go for it at 12 p.m on tuesday and eventually there can be um a resolution in and of itself it's just again and i know i keep saying this but it's just so true practice makes perfect it is, and I'm I'm glad we're kind of going in this direction because I know from my perspective, you you, you of course have a different perspective than me because you're you're female and I'm uh, male, but sometimes we just get so down on ourselves mm. for things not happening the way they're mm. supposed to happen. And yeah. for so many things in life, I'll be honest with you, so many things in life, if I have a work project or if I have people who work for me have something to get to me or if there's something that has to go down, like we're do, I'm doing some, some training and licensing at work that I wanted to get done last month mm. and things got crazy, they didn't get done, sure. and guess what? I'm just doing it this month. Like for sure. so, right. many, th- so <laughs> right. many things in life, <laughs> we're able to be like, you know what? I tried, things came up. But, you know, no harm, no foul. I'm going to get it done now. With sex, Mm. it's kind of like, oh, we failed the first time. My life is over. You know, how do we will never get the spark back. I'm just going to focus on my kids and my job now. I'm going to take up knitting or something. But for like, it's so why? why, (laughs) I mean, but why do we like why do we put so much pressure on ourselves when it comes to I, I know it has something to do with with society. I know it has something to do with with how we're brought up, but mm-hmm. it's something that no one talks about. And I'm being, I'm yeah. using generalizations here. No one talks sure. about, and apparently everyone's bad at like, it's, it's, it's so, <laughs> it's so weird. Like how, how, how do we get to that point? Sure. Absolutely. And it's so true as well. Like why, why is it that, you know, if something comes up or if something exactly as you said, if it's like, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'm, I'm getting to it now. I'm getting into it this month. And we move on and life goes on and the earth keeps spinning. But whenever it comes to sex, it really can be this super damaging and super like devastating and experience that really deters us from trying again, you know, because of that, there is such an immense, I mean, I, I, I would argue that there's perhaps no time that we're more vulnerable than even just the act of like being naked and being being honest and and expressing those things with your partner and putting yourself on the line for it not to work out and for it to for things maybe to go awry and if those breaks are really hit quickly knowing how to rebound from that and come back from that and opening yourself up to your partner and saying you know like what didn't work like what went wrong it did we didn't get to it and that's 
okay, feel, don't feel great about it, but it's okay. So like what happened? What went wrong? Well, how can we decrease that next time and just try again? 2 p.m. next Tuesday, we just try again, you know? And it's really normalizing that experience of saying like, I, I may show up imperfectly or I may not be able to show up, but it's not going to prevent me from not showing up next time right and it's so much easier said than done but it's um it's just something that that we have to get comfortable within our non-sexual intimate experiences with our partners so that naturally and with work our sexual intimate experiences will will um come with more ease and with less sort of expectations and and self-imposed pressures and i'm kind of get i kind of got Two, two big things out of that and the the kind of the idiosyncrasy of this discussion is communication is key mm. is communication is key yeah yeah and I think I got a little bit of fake it till you make it in there too <laughs> um it's kind of you know yeah. we're gonna get there we gotta yeah. keep trying um yeah. you know no no relationship is perfect so why are Absolutely. we trying to be perfect um, yeah. So I think that was very, very detailed, very poignant how you um, talked about that. And I think it'd be a failure on my end if we at least didn't kind of bring up the issue of trauma when it comes to issues mm-hmm. with sexual relationships. And Absolutely. as a, you know, as a, as a therapist, you, you don't just get the as I, as I say, uh, you know, Skittles and gummy bears conversations. Why can't we have sex more? Why can't we just, why can't we connect? Like you have to have those conversations with people who have been victims of childhood sexual trauma, people yeah. and victims of, you know, incest, people and victims of rape, yeah. people who have had, you know, unplanned pe- pregnancies and, and abortions out of that. And that's affected their sex life. Like, yeah. When you see these people in these relationships, is there an underlying theme? Is there some, or is, I'm sure every case is different, but how do you kind of talk to people who you might be the first person in their life they've mm. opened up to about, you know, um, molestation, rape, yeah. incest, things like that? Like what, Yeah. H- how does one kind of get past that? I, 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 I apologize. There's probably no getting past that. But um, how does one do with coping with that? And how does a relationship do with coping with that? Sure, sure. And it's, you know, it's such an uncomfortable truth how profoundly prevalent rape and incest and molestation and like these really, truly ugly parts of humanity and society and how pervasive and how prevalent it is. And to the point where, I mean... Yeah, it's more than than I wish were the case, to put it simply. And whenever, and oftentimes I am really the first person that, that someone has said out loud, you know, this thing happened to me. And it's, of course, I mean, at that point, especially if the foundation of your idea and conceptions of sex and sexuality were forged from an unnatural, traumatic, disempowering, or scary experience, there's a lot to unpack there. And there's so much... Um, it's crazy because it is it's similar to like why we don't talk about sex because it's so prevalent. But then on that same or on the flip side of that coin, um, 
and really related part of it being so prevalent is because we don't talk about these things and because there's so much shame and fear and pain that is really tied up into having these experiences that our our mind and our body can't properly process in the moment because it is so unnatural and so painful right and it's you know i like how you said too it's you know it's not something you can get past so to speak and it's even though that there's a, a great book written on trauma getting past your past um by francis shapiro and that's and i like seeing it you know through that lens as well but it's it's not so much about from my vantage point getting past your past but integrating your past into your present and in a healthy and conducive way and we see this and i mean this is just one example you know for there's a there's a lot of like stereotypes and misinformation around the kink community and bdsm for example but this can be one way that people and i and i really you know i want to preface this and really really say this with the disclaimer of there's a lot of harmful stereotypes that that um alternative forms of sex are you know these pe- all these people have been touched and all these people have you know it's dysfunctional and it's sick and and so i want to preface that with that's just not true you know but i'll give the example of sometimes bdsm for example can be a way for someone to in a healthy way and with the help of a, a specialist you know in a mental health counselor how to integrate these experiences and these traumas into their day to day sex lives as well uh and it's something that you do have to integrate and it's something that takes time you know and it's something it's so it is such a painful thing to revisit and the key is to every and it's so much easier said than done but just be gentle with oneself every step of the way and be understanding of oneself and understand that this is such a normal and pervasive part of our culture and it it's really sad it's really it's a sobering fact but it is and sometimes it happens and we really have to be compassionate with ourselves and how that does affect our sexuality and our sex lives and move forward in a way that that Oof, it can be profoundly painful but in turn can actually uh sort of result in a more fulfilling and enriching sex life once someone has been able to integrate these awful realities that that just shouldn't be happening but they are. And yeah, it's and I appreciate you speaking on that and um one thing I think um me personally I would I would love to see one day is if if someone is living a a healthy sexual legal lifestyle that we don't have to um say it's alternative you know mm-hmm. we don't have mm-hmm. to if we can get to a point you know our, you know growing up <clears throat> back in the um 80s and 90s and i know that sounds so long ago but um <laughs> you know we just we we didn't talk about homosexuals we didn't talk about lesbians sure. we talk and now um we see entire networks for sure. that lifestyle and i don't yeah. me personally i don't think that's an alternative lifestyle i think if if you do something that's healthy for you that makes mm. you happy that's legal that's you know doesn't hurt anybody that is and and it helps you cope how can yeah. who who am i to call that alternative lifestyle and i think right and you know we we talked about you know trauma and i think another and and those are all psychological traumas and physical traumas together what we talked about when we mm-hmm. talk about a young person who is trying to come into their sexuality 
trying to come mm. like they have feelings and i think science has already explained to us that a person is born the way they're born um sure and but you know society let's be honest puts labels on people and and that's the society we live in mm. when you deal with people who whether they're transgender whether they're homosexual whether they're bisexual pansexual um is it your job to help them label at it or is it your job to kind of just help them work through any psychological trauma they may have gone through, accept themselves or who they are? Like what is, as a therapist, like what is your job in those situations? Sure. Sure. So I think, um, on one hand, there's two kind of different forms of trauma whenever we're talking about sexuality and gender, I think. And one is very um, individualized. And whenever there has been a trauma sort of such as rape or incest or molestation, and it's really been purported onto you um, by an individual and by and getting kind of past that and integrating that, right? And then there's also the trauma that's induced from society and societal trauma of, of being born and raised into a society that is fundamentally and it's just true it's an it's an unfortunate fact but that is um structured around a lot of homophobic transphobic and heterosexist ideas right and so there is a process of both you know integration and coping with that fact right but also understanding too and really helping them build their own sense of res resiliency and empowerment and visibility to say this is not my trauma to own. I'm not sick. I'm a normal person in a sick society, you know? And then that, that thing too, as well, whenever exactly we put these labels on these things, if you are, as you said, you know, legal and safe and healthy and engaging in an act that is not hurting another person, the question really becomes, why do I care at that point? You know, if it's something that's happening in a bedroom away from me, why is it something I'm so it's it can be really difficult um, to reconcile with that and and not feeling accepted and feeling like, you know, one's sexuality or their preferences is up for discussion whenever exactly as you said, it's something that is safe and it's not harmful for anybody. And so I really try and help individuals, you know, like I uh, I'm working towards my my board certification for becoming a art therapist. And I use art a lot with this population. Um, I find that, especially in the coming out narrative and in that sense of self-acceptance and discovering one's identity, especially when it is wrapped around things like their sexuality or their gender expression, that metaphor and art and creativity can really lend itself favorably to kind of figure that out, suss it out. And, and become empowered by it, you know, and become empowered by sort of what one's preferences are and that means of self-expression. Um, so I really try and facilitate that, you know, like I am here, this is me and, and I'm not going to accept these labels or these kind of conceptions that are created around who I am and how I show up sexually or in terms of my gender that that aren't I don't feel are true to me you know and really reinforcing that and trying to have this sense of both identity exploration in a safe comfortable kind of um, sometimes creative not always if it doesn't lend itself to the person um, 
But really holding space for that and holding space for this kind of radical sense of self-acceptance and visibility that isn't trying to prove anything one way or the other, but that is just profoundly comfortable with oneself. Um, does that answer your question? That was a, that was a great answer to my question. Thank you so much for that. And yeah. I think what I, what I heard kind of in the end there is, you know, I think we can all be better at the language we use. Mm. Uh, words matter. Um, yeah. words do yeah. matter. And, um, I don't know if, if the phrase I'm looking for is kink shaming, but you know, mm-hmm. but you kind of said it. If, if I'm going to be in my bedroom at night with the person that I want to be with, like mm-hmm. who cares? Like why, right. why is this, why does this keep somebody else up at night? Why are, why are people, right you know, wanting to stick their nose in places where, you know, there's better things to worry about and there's, there's other things to worry about. So, um, Parisa, this is, this has been great. I really appreciate all your time. Um, and I kind of want to get a little personal, like how does one, how, how did you, when did you make the decision that this was your track in life? Like what, what, Mm. what turned you on to, and I totally didn't mean to say it like that, but what, (laughs) what, What, you know, at what point in your life, because this is, we've talked about how this is a difficult subject and we, it's a difficult subject because we make it a difficult subject, but Mm. we need more people in the world like you who are so open to talking about it, to using correct phrases, to being open to the discussion. Like, when did you decide, how did you get into this line of work? You know, and I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that, you know, words do matter. And it's, I think that just even seeing like I really I'm likened towards sort of narrative therapy it's you know and thinking of what are the stories we tell ourselves and what are the stories that society tells us and how do we kind of feed into that and the language we use around I feel like you know whenever I I I went to undergrad you know and I was actually born and raised in Atlanta Georgia where the show's taking place right and I started at Georgia State really looking at um, my my first bachelor's was in sociology and looking at these social codes and looking at how um, really damaging sexual ideas or, or misinformed ideas that are perpetuated throughout our society, how damaging that can be to a human while it's, as we said earlier, I mean, it's just one of the only things that every human being shares and has in common, you know, uh, while it, you know, albeit manifested and experienced and desired very, very, very differently. And it was something that I, I've just like, within my work in the humanities, I've never not seen it be such a pervasive issue. And I initially started working within sex and couples actually at an organization that was a domestic violence counseling agency. And so a lot of my clients there are coming in the aftermath of really abusive circumstances or really traumatizing, uh, you know, internalized homophobia or just these experiences that have gotten, it's a demonstration of how out of hand things can get whenever we don't talk about these things and whenever we don't course correct, whenever uh, troubling behavior comes up or whenever within ourselves and uh, maybe self-damaging or within others, within being maybe predatory. And it really you know, it likened my interest because I'm thinking this is 
we have to to become more comfortable with these conversations and with this language and really spread an awareness of that which is why i was so pleased whenever you reached out for this show because it's it's normalizing these very conversations that in turn not only Pete were enriching and and helping people con- conduct more fulfilling sexual lives but it's my interest was really sparked in in how much reduction of unnecessary abuse can happen whenever we have these conversations and so that's really what kind of likened me to the to the field if that answers your question it does and um thank you so much for for doing that and and just becoming um aware i you, you seem like a person who i don't want to i don't want so much as call it a problem but you saw kind of a gap yeah and yeah. and it uh, is a problem i yeah. think that's fair to say too yeah and and you decided I'm going to do something about it. Um, yeah. And coming from another person who my undergrad degree is in sociology, um, mm. and I I appreciate <laughs> you. I I loved all my social classes. I loved them right. all. They were so great. <laughs> and I had the best. I think sociology has like the best professors too. Um, mm. Mm. And, I would agree. <laughs> and I I probably a different show to to do the differences between sociology and psychology because people mix those up all the time. Um, mm just think of psychology one person internally sociology a community more people so just think of it that way but um but thank you so much for being a part of the show and as always lately we've kind of added we talked about a lot of deep stuff a lot of hard-hitting stuff today but we always try to end on kind of a light note and you kind of mentioned that you've been both both you know sides of the country east coast and west coast and i'm gonna Mm -hmm. i'm gonna really put your feet to the fire and are you truly west coast now or we always <laughs> always we always be east coast oh my lord put me on the spot <laughs> you know and it's funny because i think it comes up in my music preferences too i mm-hmm. love the west coast i really do i it is my for now home you know but east coast atlanta until I die, uh, that's, I've got to represent. Uh, okay, yeah, I've see, see, oh, <laughs> see I, I knew that was your. I didn't even have to ask the question. But I knew that was your answer. So, oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, Parisa, this has been great. Thank you so much. This is I've I've had this show with uh, Parisa Frost. A uh, there's so many things that that you do, but for the purpose of this show, sex marital therapist, uh, relationships mm-hmm. therapist, um, and soon to be art therapist is that what we're yeah. what we're saying awesome. yeah we're working towards it we're getting there <laughs> awesome awesome well thank you so much for being a part of the show and i look yeah. look forward to having you on again if if you would like and other than that you have a great rest of your weekend absolutely and i would love to thanks so much for having me on mark and thank you so much for doing this work and and having these conversations and making this information more accessible uh really really appreciated enjoyed our discussion today i did too you take care of yourself okay all righty Thanks to our special guest, Miss Parisa Frost, licensed sex, marital, and relationship therapist. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was truly amazing. 
As always, Relatively Normal is written, produced, and edited by me, Mark Paisant. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255.